Hello and welcome back. I hope from the last podcast you guys have a good amount more clarity on just everything that we've been speaking about. I know I do for sure, um, but I still have some questions, so we're going to go into those in this podcast. But first, let's just do a quick wrap up. We had talked about um, just the question of that that struggle, what the struggle was for, and that it was for that blessing um, of Jacob's struggle specifically, and how that equates to us and how we're struggling and looking for blessing. I specifically got kind of personal talking about how I still struggle to know if I'm good and all of that. Um, and Paul equated that to our body, soul, and spirit, and how we all have a body, a soul, and a spirit, um, and that's unique to us than in animals, because animals just have a body and a soul, and that soul is kind of our minds and emotions and such, but in the Garden of Eden, basically, it's the spirit of man died um, through the decision of Adam and Eve, and that our struggle through life is to try to find life, um, to be good in our spirit again. Um, and in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we would look and call that the blessing of God, um, that they would be full of life to be able to give life to the rest of humanity. And then as we move forward in the promises of God and the ways that he's talked about restoring that life, we would come to Jesus, who then gives us that life, that blessing, that fulfillment, and that goodness through um, the cross and through his death and through giving his life so that we could have life. And after all of that, um, my question became awesome. That actually quite explains it quite a bit for me that um, my body and my soul are not doing so great all the time and that there's still kind of death in my thoughts and um, maybe things like that, but that my soul becomes good through Jesus. And then that's where my life comes from and that's where the blessing comes from, um, that I'm given new equipment in that regard, as Paul said. Um, but I'm giving new equipment in my spirit and given that life. But the question then becomes, okay, if I have this life in my spirit, first off, how do I move forward when I'm still unsure and still kind of struggling? Because we also know that that struggle is to be human and that um, a human that has a body and a soul will still walk through struggles, no matter the wholeness or the death of their spirit. Um, but how do I move forward and live in a spirit that is whole, that is full of life? What does that look like? What does that mean? And so, Paul, if you would like to answer my question. Well, yeah, so we, we're going to be answering. So it's really, this. it's not a Q&A as people probably come to understand, but we'll be answering. So we're going to go through the process. Discipleship is a process, and because we are human beings, so we are, as you said, we are a spirit, we possess a soul, and we live in a body. So the spirit is made new. And this is the thing about the work of Jesus is not something brand new. It doesn't just show up and Jesus magically waves this wand about individuals that come around and they, he sprinkles some kind of Jesus dust on them and they become born again. Um, this, it's, there's a foundation that's laid in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and it's recognized way from the beginning um, but it's defined as we get to the prophets. So Jeremiah specifically and Ezekiel specifically speak about this new covenant, which the Bible, the New Testament, is literally a new covenant. 
So it's the same word, covenant testament, but it comes after Jesus died. That's indication what testament means. So what is the new covenant? Jeremiah starts out and he says, well, it's the forgiveness of sins. Something happens. He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of, the, of Judah. And this is what it'll be. It'll be the forgiveness of sins. You will have a new heart and a new mind and a right spirit. So Ezekiel defines this also, and he says, I'll take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So we, we're given this equipment that he says, I will be able then to write my law on your hearts and in your minds so that you will do it. You will want to do it. So we have this will, this wanting and this will and the ability to do it, to actual ability. So we have new mechanism. We have new machinery. I had a neighbor way back um, who was um, a real brilliant guy who's an engineer, and he had this car that looked like any other car. It had four wheels. It was a very simple-looking car. But he took it, he stripped it, and under the hood, he put in this engine that he rebuilt, and it, it was fueled by nitrous oxide. The thing could shoot off like a rocket when he drove down the road. But it looked just like a car. It had the same four wheels and windows and everything. Um, and when you're a believer, it's kind of like that. It's like you got new equipment. And people want to see that, though. They want to see what's under the hood. You say you're a Christian, let me see it. It's not just, I don't want to just hear a story about a testimony that's something that happened to you in 1974, you know, June 6th, whatever. I want to see the new equipment operate. You know, it's one thing being under the hood, like you say, that you're born again, but I want to see what that looks like. So for Jacob, the indication was that he never walked the same. So we start to look at the walk of Jacob. And we don't have a lot of details about Jacob's life, but we do see that he's walking under the blessing and he has his children that he's raising to live under the blessing. There's none of them that come out perfect. Matter of fact, it was a very dysfunctional family. But they do not have the new nature. So something happened to Jacob that indicated that he had this blessing, even though it was not released until the time Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And literally, if you remember the story in the book of John, where he returns to them after he rose from the dead and he breathes on them, breathes in the room where they were. <clears throat> And something uniquely happened to them that is reminiscent of the garden where Jesus breathed into Adam. So there's this spiritual dimension that has to take place. Like Jesus said, you must be born from above in order to receive this new equipment, which is invisible. The only way it becomes visible is when we walk it out. So we walk differently than the world. So I'll just give you an indication. When I got saved, it was in my kitchen floor. I just Long story, but I knew I was born again by something that happened within me. It was a cry out to God for relevance, for a genuine nature of this human being that I was, but was not functioning the way I wanted to be. I was not the person that I should be. I knew that. And I didn't know if I could be any better, but I cried out because I was longing for it. And God showed up. Um, and I knew that I was born again without anyone telling me, but when I woke up the next morning, everything was different. And I didn't know if I could be any better, but I cried out because I was long. had changed. I, I smoked cigarettes, I smoked pot, I drank, not in great amount by that time, but the desire, everything was different. And so slowly I realized that my desires had changed. I, I smoked cigarettes, I smoked pot, I drank, 
not in great amount by that time, but the desires went away. One by one, the desires for each of those things went away that I no longer wanted. They no longer had any sense of satisfaction because I found that I was satisfied with my relationship with God that I never had before. So my walk began to change. The way I journeyed through life began to change. I was no longer, and this took t more time to recognize specifically, that I was just after my own life. I was not the center of my life anymore. And I started to see that the needs of others and the concern for others, that I, it was not in my nature to think like that. So God literally put it, took away this heart of flesh, this heart of stone, and put in a heart of flesh where I could feel and, and this mind which I could think differently, you know, not just about myself. So this new equipment is lodged within our spirit. And then the question is, well, what about your soul? Well, he does give us this new mind which is capable of thinking God's thoughts, but it's still capable of thinking other thoughts. So the Spirit of God, which now lies within my spirit, which has come alive because of Jesus, um, wants to run the show. He wants to be in the, the head of my body. He wants to be in charge. So I still have the capability of taking the reins, or letting go of them. I once saw a, a, um, a bumper sticker. I was pulling into a church years ago, and I was late, and there was um, no parking place. So I drove around except this parking place that was half one car and half the other car, so there was really no room. So as I'm pulling out of the parking lot, I see this lady pull in, and she's trying to pull into this parking lot. Literally, it had no room for her. And all of a sudden, she scrapes her car. And I could see it was going to be a problem for her. And I couldn't help but notice in her bumper sticker it said, God is my co-pilot. And so I stopped my car because I, I saw her getting out of the car and she was very flustered. And she was like, oh, how did I do this? I'm so upset now, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want to be arrogant, but I couldn't help but say, ma'am, I think it has something to do with your bumper sticker. <laughs> and she says, what are you talking about? I said, well, your bumper sticker says that God is your co-pilot. I think he needs to be in the driver's seat next time. So that didn't go well with her, but I really think it was a good illustration for me that God needed to be in the driver's seat, which meant in my own spirit, he needed to be giving the dictation to my soul of how we're going to think now, how we're going to feel now, how our heart is going to beat. Is it, is it going to be you in the sh running the ship? Are you going to be at the helm? Or is God going to be the pilot? And you could come alongside of him as a co-pilot because we do have a big part to play in the life we live. But it is a process. It's a transitional process of getting used to this new equipment. I feel like there's one piece that we're missing here, which is Jacob never walks the same again, but he also doesn't have the same name. Although it is quite interesting how... Sorry, I wanted to let you cough. Um, no, I added that. Um, so he also has a new name. Um, so it's interesting... I'm gonna just once again because I lost my um <coughs> yeah just keep coughing it's good um he also has a new name um he also has a new name I'm trying to say it in a way that oh, whatever he also has a new name um but I think the piece of that that's interesting is that he's not always even referred by that new name in the bible the whole time he's still called Jacob sometimes and Israel other times and there's lots of confusion there but he is technically renamed so what do you have to say about that as far as this transformation that happened? 
Okay. Well, number one, you're very correct in saying that he's sometimes mentioned by Jacob again as the story goes on. Throughout the Bible, we do hear this Israel and Jacob thing still exists. So does that? I thought he's gone. He's dead. But there's a, there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that later, because um, Israel actually becomes the name of the people that come from Jacob. So his descendants, his children, take on the name Israel as their own name. And so Israel becomes a people, which is the nation. So we have Israel as a people and as a nation. Now remember one thing, just so I can clarify this, that... Um, his mother, Rebecca, when she was pregnant, she had pre uh, twins. And she's told that there are two nations within your womb, which is a very strange thing to be told. But out of her came Esau and Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel. Esau literally becomes Edom, which is another nation. They actually become in conflict. So when we talk about Jacob and Israel later on, we'll still see them both in the story. There's reasons for that, both as a nation and as a people. So would the reasoning in the Bible of not calling him Israel from there on out just be for the fact of not confusing? It's not confusing when we see it in in context. Yeah, I mean, just to not confuse what Israel means and what Jacob means. Jacob, the person, Israel, the people. To not confuse the two, we don't call Jacob Israel. Is that the point? Well, the... The thing is that if we were to reference this, which we're going to use symbolically, we're going to apply this to the New Testament. What happens to a believer who has been born again and received this new nature? Um, old things pass away. We see that all things become as new. We become a new creation, it says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. So does that mean we are no longer ourselves? We're not human beings. We're a new creation, this superhuman human alien that's landed on earth but we look the same no we're I hope not yeah. otherwise i'm not born again yeah no we're not we're human but we have we have divine capabilities because we've taken on the nature of jesus um which the bible speaks of as a divine nature so it's not our own nature it's not a human nature and we have no credit in it either but we have been given possession of it by the new birth However, we are still in this same body and we still have a human soul. So in remembering that, we have this Jacob-like personality, but we're not Jacob. So that's the thing. We have the capabilities of doing things that anyone else would do because we have to make decisions. And that's what God has given us to make us in his image, just like he did Adam and Eve. They were perfect in all their ways until sin was found in them. When was sin found in them? When they decided to not believe God, not to trust him. And that's when their nature began to change. Same thing we could see in the naming of Jacob to Israel. He still has this nature, but it does no longer define him. And that's where I think we should jump into the identity and what does this all, what does this mean to you? What does it mean to me? Mm -hmm. So am I a Jacob? Am I Israel? You know, I mean, as Jacob far as... Jacob didn't even change his name, so why should I change mine? 
Right. Well, so do fun. you have a new name? Do I not, don't call you Michaela? I should call you something else now? People go to that extreme. They actually do change their name. And I think they get whacked out like that because they don't understand the simplicity of the story. It is not a flaky story. This new nature and this new name, is a, it's a divine name. Even how we see, there's a song, there's a, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. God says, I will give you a new name, but he doesn't give it to us on earth. So in his mind, there is a new name, there's because there's a new nature. And so what God is identifying is the nature that is lasting, the nature that is eternal in, na in nature, that will, that will follow us through the grave into a new dimension called eternal life. So... I think that's important. And when we look at the New Testament, there really are two identities that are found that, are, that run through the Bible. And that is sinners and saints. You don't see that that often in the Old Testament. That's it's a, more like the wise man and the fool in the Old Testament. I mm -hmm. feel like it's a very similar thing. Yeah. there, Because that, that comes up quite a bit. Yeah. Someone who's a fool and someone who's right. wise. Right. The wicked and the righteous. Yes. So there's this, but when we come to the New Testament, I think a lot of confusion takes place in the Christian community about this identity. And we say that we're either a sinner or a saint. But in the Christian world, it's that I am a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. So the distinction is just that grace has been added to the sinner like nature and is that really what it's saying though because if that's it then i'm a sinner but i just have this extra ingredient in me that makes me saint-like or become a saint like the catholic church names people saints long after they die and they have to have this you know this quorum take place and debate take place whether or not this person qualifies as a saint before they're named a saint um, I don't think that's biblical. I, in fact, it is not biblical. But the thing that many Christians, if not most, have been taught and believe is that I am a sinner. I just have been born again, and so I can be different. So I can be um, a nice guy. I can be good. But there's still this wrestling match. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I do do I don't want to do and so there's this internal battle going on that is constant almost schizophrenic to a point I don't it's think a, that's what the Bible teaches it's a schizophrenic behavior modification the schizophrenic I'm a sinner I've been covered so I've got this covering but I, I'm supposed to be trying to do what's right but I'm fighting it and can't always because my nature doesn't let me yada 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 lots of stuff going on there where it becomes schizophrenic like you're saying it's like well if I am a sinner and I just got grace added to me. Am I if I'm a sinner and I got grace added to me, am I supposed to be perfect? Am I supposed to now be all washed and pure and good, but I'm still a sinner and I'm still going to mess up? So what does that mean? How much am I allowed to before I'm not covered by grace anymore? Or am I always covered by grace? Mm. And if I'm always covered by grace, then why does it matter if I keep doing what I want to do anyway instead of dealing with the schizophrenia of it all? Okay, well... I just want schizophrenic. <laughs> yeah, you're not schizophrenic, number one. You don't have this... There is a sense of battle, of control, of who's going to run the show, the soul. 
Um, the Spirit of God wants to be king, and he's a gentleman. We're always told that. Um, so he's not going to force his way because we're made in God's image again, and that gives us the ability to make decisions. And we're not forced into decisions. We make them. So, but what does this mean? The battle exists because we live in this body that has fallen in nature, and it has affected our soul. It has done its work in our soul. So we're given this ability to think and feel right, but we still have this residual effect that we have to deal with. So are we a sinner um, who becomes a saint, or are we both, or are we just one? And this is what the nature, the identity really speaks of. Israel is no longer one who strives against God, he strives with God. So a sinner is actually someone who will perish. A sinner perishes. And we're told, we, we need to dive into the New Testament to really look at this, where um, the distinction is made. And I think we, sh we should put this to rest. I don't know if we could do it in the next 10 minutes, but we'll try. And I th the, the most clear place where people lean on the fact that we are sinners is because they look at the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 1, um, it says, Paul is saying that he was the chiefest of sinners. Now, if Paul, who is the hero and the leading figure of the writers of the New Testament, how could he say that he's the chiefest of sinners if that means that we're not all sinners. And so this is why context is so important. Because he says that in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. He says, this, is, uh, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So it says clearly that I am the foremost or the chiefest of sinners. But... What is the context here? Well, if you just go up a little bit, he says that though I was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of the gospel, but I received mercy. Something happened. He was something and something happened. What happened? Well, he received mercy. What did the mercy do? Well, it says, and the grace of our Lord, so from the mercy came the grace of God overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Jesus. And then he goes on to say that about him um, being the chiefest of sinners. He So does that mean that he is the chiefest of sinners or that he was the chiefest of sinners because he said, but I receive mercy? So here's the thing. When he goes on to talk about this, he said, he starts to talk to them about their lives. And he said that um, you people are no different than I was. And he, he talks about some of the things that these people were. And, he, and without going into great detail, that some of you were manslayers. And so we have this nature that is, some are going to say that is either sinner, sin nature or a saint nature, but it's not just the nature that we're talking about, it's the identity that comes out of the nature. Which nature do we receive that is the one that I, God identifies us with? Does God see us as sinners, or does he see us as saints? Now, I think this is important because Paul did say that he was the chief of sinners. So what does that mean? If he's not a sinner, 
anymore, then what does it mean that when he says he's the chiefest of sinners? Well, we see that it's a past tense thing. That's number one, but people can argue that one. But then if we see, well, well, if he's not, then show me how he's not a sinner. So sin literally means to miss the mark. Most Christians agree on that, to miss the mark. Simply like a, a shooting an arrow into a bullseye and you miss it. If you just miss that bullseye, then, you've, then you are literally sinning according to the definition. That's just the sin, simple definition of a sin is to miss the mark. So a sinner is someone who misses the mark on a regular basis. Now, why would he call himself the chief of sinners? Well, I think we have to look at what he's talking about. He says, now you're all sinners. We are all fall under that category. There's none righteous, no, not one. That's an Old Testament doctrine and followed through in the New Testament. But what did Paul actually do that makes him the chiefest of sinners? Because when I saw that the first time, I said, Paul, you got nothing on me. I way outdid you in the sinner category. And so I really kind of argued with that when I first saw it. But then I started to think about him, is what did he do? So he was one that was, that was a brilliant man. He was filled with knowledge of the scriptures. He was a Jew of Jews, you know, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he was considered the most righteous, although they were in the self-righteous category, of anyone he knew. And so what made him the chiefest of sinners is that not only did he miss the mark, but he aimed for the heart of God. When he was persecuting Jesus, he was literally aiming at God's heart, and he wanted to pierce that heart and end it, stop it from beating. That's why he was called the chiefs of sinners. So there is nothing worse than that. I mean, all the bad things that anyone's ever done before cannot compare to wanting to literally kill the Son of God. So that, to me, qualifies him as chiefs of sinners. That's number one. But number two is that um, the New Testament is addressed to a certain people. If you start reading f or after the book of Acts, you come to Romans. The first chapter, it says, to the, to the um, saints in Rome, those who are to become saints, those, those who are called saints. You get to Corinthians, to the saints who are in Corinth. Get to Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesians. Colossia, the saints in Colossia. So it's always addressed to the saints, never addressed to the sinners. Christians are never called sinners. So if they're never called sinners, shouldn't that be one thing about what God is saying to those he's wanted to talk to? Is that he doesn't call them sinners. And as a matter of fact, Paul says that we are no longer Gentile sinners. So, because the Gentiles were known as sinners because they were apart from God and the covenant and the commonwealth of Israel. Um, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, you were a new creation um, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Uh, old things pass away. Your sin, the nature of sin, your identity of sin passes away and all things become new. And it says in Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. So there's a past tense involved. So what's the difference? Does it really matter, you know, if Jacob was named Jacob, Israel's named Israel, you're a saint, I'm a sinner. Does it really, really matter? Because you're trying to tell me that you don't need sin anymore because you're not a sinner. Well, I'm not saying that at all. Because uh, the reminder is all too often that I'm still human, that I'm still capable of sinning. And First John puts that to rest when he says, if anyone says he's without sin, then he's a liar. But we have, a, we have an escape clause for the consequences of sin, and that is recognition of it, 
brokenness of it because it breaks God's heart and he's written his law, his royal law within our hearts. And so we say, I'm broken, God, by what I just did, what I just said, what I, what, what I was just thinking. Lord, I'm broken by these things and I ask you to forgive me and, and remove them from me. Remove, remove the, the effect of these things from me so that I could live according to the design and according to my nature. So God does that. He cleanses us and he renews us and he allows us to walk in that nature and become accustomed to it. So we, we become accustomed to the new equipment. You know, if you, if you have a five-speed um, automobile that's capable of doing great thing, you know, great speeds after the third gear and you keep it in fourth gear, you're never going to have the full capacity of your car, the full capability of, of, of going, running the race or riding the race. So that's kind of what the equipment does. Um, but if we don't use it, it's not that we lose it, it's that we don't run in full capacity. And, we, and when we start feeling that I've sinned again, I am a sinner. And we beat our breasts, oh God, I'm a man, I'm done, you know, and just a sinner saved by grace is not much to me. And I don't know how you could love me and I need more faith and all this stuff that we start begging for that God has already given us. We're like Jacob in that moment, begging for the blessing that's already ours. Yes. Um, but Jacob did not have the teaching, number one. He didn't have the understanding because it wasn't given. It was given by revelation centuries later. It's not that he could not be a friend of God like Abraham was, uh, the meekest of all men like Moses was, because God does give him the necessary equipment. He can anoint with his spirit uh, individuals in the Old Testament um, like the New Testament, but in the New Testament, we become embodied, our, his spirit becomes embodied within us. So there's this dis difference between residence and coming upon us, you know, for specific activities. So if, you're, you're meaning that in the Old Testament, comparing that to Jacob, that that was just him coming upon them for revelation during different periods of time, and now he's resting with us, on us. He, he, I, don't, I can't say that Jacob is resting on who he is because we don't really see that completely in Jacob. Uh, and if he did and everything was good to go with him, we would not see uh, a New Testament, a need for Jesus, a need for forgiveness of sins, a need for fulfillment of the covenant that gives us a new heart, a new mind, and a right spirit. It's, it's this, this sense of faith becomes active in him, that he could trust God with the information that he has. And it's a more difficult life. It's definitely a more difficult life. The dif dispensation that, that they lived through, and I'm not a dispensationalist, but there was a dispensation within this Old Testament era that did not have the same qualities that are given in the New Testament because they have a problem with sin and they have to deal with it through the sacrificial system which has yet to unfold in Jacob's story. But it's not that it's not known to a, a limited degree um, because, you know, we see it even in Adam. They sacrificed an animal for the skins because they felt naked and ashamed. They needed some kind of covering. So this information was latent in the human mind that they needed an escape from sin. And the sacrificial system is the beginning that comes the basis of the law system, which Moses initiated, so I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but 
um, they did not have the new nature functioning. In fact, Moses would say, you're going to keep screwing up. You're going to keep making mistakes. You're going to keep running from God because your hearts are not circumcised yet. You've circumcised the foreskin, but you have not circumcised the heart, which a human being cannot do. Only God can do. 